Welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 440. The Drabblecast is a weekly audio fiction magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. Got a nice, long, juicy one for you folks this week that I'm fairly certain you've never read or heard of. I don't know, this one really just grabbed me when I first read it a couple years ago, and for whatever reason I just haven't been able to forget about it, nor do I want to. We bring you The Earth Brain by Edmund Hamilton. Edmund Hamilton's career as a science fiction writer began with the publication of a short story called The Monster God of Marmouth in the August 1926 issue of Weird Tales. That's right, folks, we got an oldie but a goodie here. Every now and then, you just gotta take a big ol' swig of some hearty vintage weirdness from back in the good old days. The story, in fact, was written in 1932, but somehow feels more modern than that. Hamilton had a way of doing that, much like Asimov. A lot of his writing, ideas, and creative contributions were really before their time. After his first couple sales, Hamilton quickly became a central member of a remarkable Weird Tales supergroup assembled by editor Farnsworth Wright that also included peers Robert Howard and H.P. Lovecraft. He wrote for all the SF pulp magazines back then, and later became primarily known as the creator of the space opera subgenre. Little factoid for you there. In 1942, Hamilton changed it up and began writing for DC Comics, specializing in stories for Batman and Superman. In Detective Comics number 233, he and artist Sheldon Moldoff created Batwoman. Other fun little fact, you know that internet meme you always see around where Batman's slapping the mess out of Robin saying something funny? Well, that was from Edmonton's Batman story, The Clash of Cape and Cow, in World's Finest Comics 1965. The more you know. Anyways, hope you enjoy the story. Without further ado, we bring you The Earth Brain by Edmund Hamilton. Landon I had not seen for two years before that day when New York knew fear. That day is remembered yet, with its sudden and unexpected earth tremor that shook the island shortly after noon, swaying proud towers and shaking windows to fragments, and loosing a storm of panic-stricken cries that could not drown the long, grinding roll of the shifting earth beneath. I was in the midtown section that noon, and I'd been struggling through the hurrying crowds when the shock and quivering of the ground turned them suddenly into a white-faced, hoarse-voiced, and terror-smitten mob. For five minutes, they and all of New York's millions tasted fear as the streets quivered beneath them. Then the tremor subsided, and I saw Landon. He was standing almost against me in the throng, and his face was so strange that for a moment it held me without recognition. For Landon's face was a mask of fear, not the panic that was passing from there about me, but a fear beyond fear, a deep, and alien dread. His dark eyes looked out of the white and twisted face as though into vistas of hell. And then I recognized him. Clark Landon, I cried. Why didn't you let me know you were back? I didn't even know you were in the country. His dark eyes surveyed me with a fixedness that chilled me. I landed only two hours ago, Morris, he said. Two hours ago and, and you see what's happened already? What's the matter, Landon? I asked anxiously. This earth tremor hasn't upset you, has it? I should think it wouldn't after the polar quake you went through. I read about that at the time. Yes, that polar quake, he said softly. You read that Travis and Skeel were killed in that, but I wasn't. I wasn't killed, no, but I've been in all the quakes that have been racking the earth since then. In Norway and Russia and Egypt, in Italy and England, and now here in New York. I was amazed. Why, one would think earthquakes are following you, I exclaimed. But they say all these tremors and quakes are due to the big polar cataclysm you went through. They say it touched off things in some way and so caused the quakes that have been going all over the earth since that one. Ever since that one, Landon repeated softly. Yes, they've been going on ever since that one. He was looking beyond me, lost in a strange abstraction. By then, the streets about us were near normal, the city's millions losing their brief panic and taking up again the swift routine that even a near earthquake could not disturb for long. 
Hurrying passerbys were already shouldering against the two of us. Look here, Landon, I said. You don't look half well at the moment. My rooms are only a few blocks from here. Come up and sit for a while. You'll feel better. I'm afraid it will take more than that to make me feel better, Morris, he said. Yet he came, and when we were seated at a window of my apartment, with the mill race of a crosstown street's traffic below, he seemed to relax a little. Sitting opposite him, I strove to analyze the strange dread that still seemed holding him, but was unable to do more than to say to myself that the dread was real, and that Landon had apparently changed completely. The Clark Landon I had known had hardly known the meaning of fear, a lithe, dark fellow to whom danger spelled delight. His twin and equal interests had been geology and adventure. His inherited money had enabled him to combine the two in expeditions in which he and his inseparable comrades in science and adventure, David Travis and Herbert Skeel, had investigated the world's far corners. Landon and Travis and Skeel had departed over two years before on another such expedition, one intended to take them into the North Polar region. Landon had announced their purpose as the investigation of certain geological oddities believed existent not far from the pole, but all knew that it was the lure of a new adventure that drew him and his companions as much as any hope of adding to geological knowledge. The three had sailed in a special ice-breaking schooner Landon had chartered, which had taken them as far as the southern shores of Grantland. From there, Landon and Travis and Skeel had started north with two dog sledges and two Eskimos, believing that with their equipment they could reach their objectives a few hundred miles south of the pole and return without difficulty. Ten days after Landon and his party started north from the ship, there occurred that terrific earthquake that shook the whole polar region with unprecedented violence, and was registered by the world's seismographs as centering not far south from the pole itself. The waiting schooner was almost destroyed, but escaped the shifting ice and continued to wait, though with scant hope for the party. That first awful quake was followed in the next two weeks by a succession of less violent upheavals and tremors, trending southward. Then Landon and one of the Eskimos reappeared. The latter died the next day. Landon himself was far gone, but was revived and could tell those on the ship that the great quake had indeed centered where they had been, and that Travis and Skeel and the other Eskimo had perished in it. He was brought back to strength during the voyage south, and after a few narrow escapes from glacial fragments, the ship reached Halifax. While Landon was at Halifax had come the sudden quake that destroyed half of the city, though he'd escaped. In the succeeding two years, Landon himself was forgotten, but the great polar quake he had gone through was often referred to, for Earth had been torn ever since by a succession of violent quakes and upheavals. They seemed to progress from one locality to another, from Newfoundland to Norway, to Russia and Egypt, and Italy and England. It was the theory of many scientists that these succeeding quakes were caused by a series of faults in Earth's structure that had been touched off by the great polar quake that Landon had gone through. Of Landon himself, though, I had heard nothing after his leaving Halifax, and now I was amazed at his changed appearance as he sat opposite of me. He must have guessed my thoughts. You think I've changed, Morris? he asked. Don't deny it, man. I, I know that I have. I know it's stamped on my face. Travis and Skeel, I began awkwardly. Travis and Skeel are dead, and they're lucky. No, it's not their death that's changed me, though they were the best friends a man could have. It's the way they died. There were three of us who went up there, he said, gazing darkly past me. And the third still lives. I wonder for how long. Landon, you've brooded too much, I told him. I can understand what an appalling experience that polar quake must have been to go through, but you can't understand, he lashed out. No one can. Morris, you saw me panic-stricken a little while ago, when the tremor shook the city. Did it surprise you? Uh, frankly, it did, I said slowly. But I can understand how that first quake would have unnerved you, and the ones you've chanced to be in since. It wasn't chance that I was in them, he said astonishingly, and then leaned in to clutch my arm. Morris, can you conceive of such a thing as earthquakes following one person across the face of this earth, seeking him out, no matter where he may go, riving the earth and raising cities and killing tens of thousands, to kill that one fugitive? 
Earthquakes that deliberately pursue one fleeing man with deadly purpose. <laughs> Earthquakes following a man, I repeated. Why, the idea is mad. You surely don't think because you've been by coincidence in all these... I don't think, he said. I know. I know that the quakes you speak of have pursued me across the earth in the last two years with deadly purpose. Even today, two hours after I landed in the city, they've shown me that they are still after me. Landon, you can't believe this, I expostulated. Be reasonable, man. An earthquake is simply a movement of the earth's mass. How could such movements follow you deliberately? I know how, he said, his eyes strange. Travis and Skeel, they knew too, before they died. But I know and I am still alive, if only for a time. I'm going to tell you a thing, Morris. I know before the telling that you will find it impossible, just as I would have two years ago. But in your unbelief, remember this, that of all the things in the universe, the one we men know least of, really, is the earth we live upon. It has been over two years since Travis and Skeel and I started north on that trip of ours. We left St. John's in a sturdy Canadian schooner built for Arctic work with a Canadian crew. The ship was to take us as far as northern Grantland, and from there we three were going to work ourselves north for the last lap. Our objective was a great ice mountain, its rock visible through openings in its icy sides that was supposed to exist in the polar region some three hundred miles or more this side of the pole. We'd heard of this polar mountain from several sources. It had been a matter of minor dispute between two different airplane expeditions that had flown over the pole. One claimed to have sighted the big ice-clad peak, and the other claimed that it didn't exist. Travis and Skeel and I were going north to see if it did exist. If you know anything at all of geology, you will know what such a polar mountain, a mountain in that icy desolation at the Earth's top, would mean to geologists. It would prove beyond doubt the existence of a polar continent beneath the ice, and might throw a flood of light on things that have puzzled geological science. The three of us were afire to find out if such a peak did exist in the North Pole region. The North Pole, you know, like the South one, is more of a region than a point. The Earth is oblate, flattened at top and bottom, and that flat region around the Northern Pole is in fact the top or foremost of Earth. In that great ice expanse, the mountain was supposed to exist, and Travis and Skeel and I were bent on finding it. So we sailed north from St. John's with our schooner, loaded with equipment. The schooner crept northward for two months through icy channels toward the northern tip of Grantland. Travis and Skeel and I were busy making ready our equipment. At North Devon, we picked up two Eskimos who were to make the final trip with us, two sturdy fellows named Noskat and Sean. Our sledges and dogs were ready, and when the ship reached the icy coast of Grantland, we were ready to start north on the final lap as soon as the freeze came. It came soon, and we started. Travis and Skeel and I, and Noskat and Sean, with the two sledges and dogs, headed north over the frozen wastes. We carried felt tents, special chemical fuel of small bulk and weight, food and instruments, and an automatic apiece. Travis and Skeel and Noskat took the lead sledge, and Sean and I the other. For ten days we pushed north over endless ice fields, making thirty miles a day. Ten days, three hundred miles. It doesn't sound so much, does it? Well, it was a cross-section of icy hell. Can you imagine a world in which all has turned to glittering ice that stretches to the horizon in eye-aching whiteness? A world in which the sickly polar day never ceases to shine. A world in which the polar cold closes down upon you like a hand, gripping through your numbed flesh to your bones. That was the kind of world we were moving through. Ten days, and they each seemed weeks long. We would wake, would eat half-warmed food and limber our stiffened muscles, then fold the tent and harness the dogs, and then north again, north over the ice desert's hummocks and ridges like pygmies traversing that vast white expanse. Until on the tenth day, we sighted the mountains. At first we could not believe our eyes. We'd been pushing onward so mechanically that in the sheer struggle we'd almost forgotten our mission. 
Then, as our eyes took in that huge peak towering into the steel sky, ice sheathed and with the dark openings in its side, our exclamations came with a rush. We pushed on, little heeding difficulties then. In another day, we were at the mountain's foot, a thousand feet below the lowest of the dark openings. We camped there that night, exultant at reaching our goal, and there trouble began. The dogs had been whining strangely as we approached the mountain, needing the lash to make them go forward at all, and our two Eskimos had been muttering to themselves. Then, no sooner had we pitched camp than there came a slight earth tremor, a shock as of earth stirring underneath that made our tent quiver and the ice fields round it crackle. To us, it was somewhat surprising to encounter an earth tremor in this region, but that was all. But on Nuscat and Sean, the two Eskimos, the tremor's effects were tremendous. Their swart faces grew positively livid with fear. They jabbered in their tongue for minutes, looking fearfully up toward the mountain's huge icy bulk, and then approached us in panic. By then the dogs had begun yelping strangely as though in terror. We cannot stay here, Nuscat told us excitedly. This is the forbidden mountain at the earth's top, shunned by all our race. We knew not that was what your goal was. Forbidden mountain, repeated Travis. Forbidden by whom? Forbidden by the earth, was Nosgat's answer. The earth is living as we are. It cares not how men move upon its vast body as long as they do not approach this mountain. The earth living? What the devil's this all about? Travis demanded. Skeel intervened. It's an Eskimo belief, Travis, he said. I've heard of it before. They, they think the Earth's a great living thing and we humans are mere insects or the like. <laughs> what a crazy belief, Travis commented. He turned his back to Noscat. Why does your living Earth forbid anyone to come near this mountain then? Because this mountain holds Earth's mind, Earth's brain, said Noscat solemnly, Sean nodding corroboration. Earth likes us not to come near its brain, and so it has moved its great body beneath us to warn us away. <laughs> Rot, said Travis. That tremor just now, that wasn't a warning, but a slight earthquake, like any other earthquake. All earthquakes are but movements of Earth's great body, asserted Noscat stubbornly. Earth can move its body as it wishes. Well, that sounds logical enough, Travis, I said, grinning. He turned toward me. Hey, don't encourage him, Landon, he said sharply. We'll have trouble enough with them as it is. He swung back on Nuscat and Sean. That tremor was just an ordinary tremor, and this stuff about a living earth is nonsense, he said forcibly. We are going to stay here two days at least, and you two are going to camp down here while we explore and examine that mountain. But you must not try to explore the mountain, Noscat said excitedly. You dare not approach Earth's brain. If you do... That's enough, snapped Travis. You and Sean are going to wait here while we explore. There'll be no more talk about this. When Noscat and Sean had gone to their own tent, Travis turned to us with a disgusted expression. This would be just our luck, he said, to have those two, just as we get here, break loose with their superstitions. I wonder if they're only superstitions, said Skeel thoughtfully. We stared at him. <laughs> what the devil? I exclaimed. Do you believe that stuff about Earth being a living, intelligent being? Skeel's face was serious. Yeah, I mean, I've heard of stranger things, Landon. Why couldn't the Earth be a living organism instead of just a mass of inanimate matter? It seems an inanimate mass to us, it's true, but so must a human being seem an inanimate mass to the microbes that live on and in that being. Earth might be a living organism. All the planets might be organisms of scale and nature so different from us that we mites who swarm upon it cannot even comprehend. And if it is a living organism, it could possess consciousness and intelligence. Uh, perhaps intelligence operating on planes and for ends entirely alien to us. Wait, 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 wait. And you think then, as Nosgat said, that Earth's brain is somewhere in this mountain? Travis demanded incredulously. Skeel smiled. I didn't say that. Though, as a matter of fact, if Earth were a living and intelligent organism, it would, it would have to seat the intelligence somewhere, and as likely up here at Earth's top as anywhere. I'll say you're a cuckoo geologist, I exclaimed. You're as bad as those two Eskimos. Travis stretched. Well, whether or not Earth's brains inside that mountain, we're going to do some climbing on it tomorrow.
Yeah, and some climbing it's gonna be, I told him. If we can get up far enough to get a look at that uncovered rock, we'll be lucky. We turned in, huddled in our furs, and though the dogs were still whiny in a panicky fashion now and then, we fell almost instantly to sleep. We were awakened when our watches told us it was morning by a sensation of someone shaking us, and found that it was another earth tremor that had rocked the tent, one as strong or as stronger than the night before. It was over almost before we were awake, the grinding crackle of ice dying away. We struggled rapidly into our outer clothes and heard the dogs, who had yelped with terror when the tremor began, become silent as though cowed by utter fear. The tent still quivered with the tremor's last vibrations. Travis cursed. Another damn tremor. This'll make those two swarthy sons of perdition harder than ever to handle, if I'm right. His surmise proved correct, for we had not emerged from the tent into the polar cold and glare when Noscat and Sean were upon us. They were quite evidently in an extreme state of terror. According to them, the tremor was another and stronger sign that the earth was uneasy at our presence, and a warning for us to turn and head southward at all possible speed before the earth destroyed us. They even went so far in their panic as to say that if we did not, they would start south without us with one of the sledges. Travis's cold voice whipped to them through their terror. You'll stay here, all right, he told them. You know too well what would happen to you if you showed up back down there with the ship and without us. But if you try to explore the mountain, Earth's brain will be very wroth. I've had enough of all this crazy talk about Earth and its brain, Travis told them impatiently. You two will stay here until we come back, or you'll go with us. At that alternative, both Noscat and Sean became silent out of sheer terror. I told them to see to the dogs, which were still acting strangely, and then with Travis and Skeel prepared for our climb, we let on. As we could not hope to bring back any specimens, even if we succeeded in reaching one of the openings in the mountain's ice sheath, we took only our ice axes and a single rock axe. We wore our automatics in our belts with the idea of impressing the two Eskimos if they still harbored ideas of flight, and we were roped together. With a final admonition and warning to Noscat and Sean from Travis, we started up the icy mountainside. A thousand feet above us was the dark circle in the ice that we wanted to reach, an opening through the peak's frozen sheath we were sure to its inner rock. If we could make even a cursory examination of the mountain's rock strata, we felt our trip would be worthwhile. From the first, our climb was tremendously difficult. Travis led, cutting steps where needed with his ice axe, taking advantage of ledges and cracks in the ice, moving tortuously up with Skeel and I close behind. Our heavy fur clothing was a hindrance to us in climbing, though even through it the polar cold penetrated. We were forced to rest every few yards, clinging against the icy slope like three strange furry animals. At such halts I looked down, and for a time I could see Noscat and Sean, down by the tents and sledges, watching our progress. Then an instant slant from the icy slope hid them from view. This slant inward made climbing a little easier, and now we could plainly see the round opening in the ice above, and could make out that it opened through the ice to the dark, bare rock of the mountain itself. That was a spur to our efforts, and we struggled on, Travis's axe chipping steadily ahead of us, until at last Travis pulled himself into the opening in the ice, and then jerked us up beside him. We were hardly in that opening, lying panting for the moment, when there came another earth tremor, much more violent. It seemed that the whole mountain and the ice fields around it were swaying and shaking, and there came as though from far beneath a crackling roar. We lay still, and in a moment it ceased. "'Good Lord!' exclaimed Travis as we stood up then. "'If that had happened a moment ago when we were climbing, it would have been bad for us.' "'Damn these tremors anyway,' I said. "'If that one had succeeded in scaring off Noscat and Sean, I wouldn't be surprised.' We peered down and saw them on the ice near the tents. They were on their knees, gesticulating in terror up towards us and the mountain. They made frantic motions for us to return. We shook our heads, and Travis gestured sharply to them, ordering them to remain where they were. Their terror subsided a little, and he turned to us. They'll stay there, I think. They're more afraid to go back to the ship without us than to stay. But we'd best not stay up here for too long ourselves. Skeel had turned, and was staring into the opening in the mountainside. Lord, look at this, he said. We looked, and we were petrified with astonishment. 
The opening in which we stood was the mouth of a round tunnel that slanted straight back and downward into the mountain's mighty mass. This tunnel was thirty feet in diameter and ran inward toward the mountain's center in a slight downward grade, as straight as though it had been gouged by a huge punch. There was no ice in the tunnel, though a steady current of air rushed down it. We examined the black rock of its walls quickly, then again with mounting excitement. It was a geologist's nightmare. This mountain's rock was stratumless, a smooth black rock that might have come from the Earth's innermost mass. Well, I'll say we found something exciting here, cried Travis excitedly. Why, this rock's pre-igneous, even. It's a kind of rock geology's not even heard of. But this opening, this tunnel leading down into the mountain, I asked, what could have formed it? God knows, Landon, but the other openings we saw in the mountain's ice sides must have been the mouths of similar tunnels, and they must lead down to some central opening or space. There's air current in this one. Travis unhooked from his belt his flat metal electric torch and sent its rays down the dark tunnel's length. The quivering little beam wavered down through the next few hundred feet of the tunnel, but showed only the same smooth black rock sides. The only way we'll find out what this tunnel leads to down there is to follow it and see, said Travis. Come on, you two. We started down the tunnel. Its grade was not steep enough to make it so perilous, though its floor, like its sides, was so smooth as to make footing difficult. We had a hard time keeping our footing when, a moment or so later, there came another tremor that swayed the mountain so that the tunnel's floor seemed to pitch beneath us. By then, we were too excited over the geological strangeness of the tunnel and the black rock and the whole mountain to mind the tremor. We pressed on, Travis's quivering beam preceding us, with the circle of white light that was the tunnel's mouth dwindling and disappearing before and above us. We paid no more attention to another tremor that shook us a few moments later, or to still another that followed that one. Within a quarter of an hour, we'd followed the tunnel downward for half a mile, and had found it curved slightly now, instead of running straight as before, but led still in a general direction down the mountain's center. By then, too, the tremors and quakings of the mountain and earth around it had become practically continuous. The tunnel's walls were swaying unceasingly around us, not violently, but noticeably. The strangeness of these continued tremors penetrated through even our excitement, and we stopped in the tunnel's curve we were passing through. Travis flashed his beam ahead and behind. "'Damn queer, all these tremors at once!' he exclaimed. "'They seem to be getting worse, too!' "'I'm beginning to think this whole mountain is queer,' Skeel said. "'Tell me, have you two felt anything?' We stared at him. We had experienced, with increasing strength, a sensation so strange that neither Travis nor I had mentioned it. It was a sense of a tangible and powerful force that flooded out over and through us from ahead, a tingling force that had a strange effect upon my will. I cannot describe that effect better than by saying that the farther down into the tunnel we went, the more did my own will and personality seem shared or usurped by some will or force utterly alien and different. In other words, that as I went on, I was not only Clark Landon, but something or a part of something vast and strange, whose will partly replaced Clark Landon's will in me. I felt it, yes, I told Skeel. But I didn't know you had. You too, Travis? Travis nodded puzzledly. I felt it also. There must be some center of radioactive or electrical force down in the mountains, and the closer we get to it, the more it affects us. But what about the tremors? Skeel asked. Can we go on in the face of them and, and this other thing? The devil with the tremors, said Travis impatiently. There's something tremendous down inside this mountain, and I say we go on, tremors or no tremors. What do you think, Landon? I looked doubtedly from Skeel to Travis. Uh, after all, we've been in worse tremors than these, I said. And I think Travis is right when he says there must be something tremendous down in this mountain. I think there is myself, said Skeel. And I think that with these tremors, it's warning us back. Oh, rot, said Travis. Are you going to start with that silly notion of no scats about Earth's brain being down here? No, I'm with you two if you want to go on, Skeel said. Then it's on, I said. We can't go a great deal farther anyway, for we can't spend too long a time down here. 
We resumed our interrupted progress. The tunnel curved on downward toward the mountain's heart. The currents of air still rushed down it unceasingly, making me wonder, as we went on, whether what thing of force was down here somehow drew or attracted those air currents through this and the other tunnels leading up to the mountain's sides. The tremors were somehow more violent, and it was evident that the whole mountain was shaking. We moved on without commenting on them, though. It was hard work to keep our footing on the smooth, swaying floor of the tunnel, and we were thrown continually against its sides, sometimes with force. But we held to our downward progress, drawn by the mystery we were now sure this mountain held. For the strange force that beat upon us from ahead with increasing strength as we went on could only be mysterious and unheard of to our science, the sensation as of the impact of a colossal will stronger and stronger. Can you imagine a will so mighty that the mere nearness to it makes one feel its power as tangible force? That is what this alien force inside the mountain felt like. Skeel's face was becoming grave, and even Travis seemed troubled as we went on. The tremors by then had become really terrible, great roarings and shakings that swayed the tunnel's walls. But now so strange was everything, so dazing that vast, enigmatic force that beat stronger, that we paid small attention. We rounded another long curve in the downward slanting tunnel and saw a ghostly, glowing light ahead of it, heard a soft roar of steady sound over the grinding crash. Like puppets drawn by forces outside us, we pressed onward toward the light. As we neared it, the impact of strange forces from ahead was almost stunning. There came a great, last tremor that almost flung us from our feet. But even Skeel did not mind it, since in the moment it came we had reached the glowing light, had emerged suddenly from the dark tunnel into a great, glowing-lit place. We halted in it, stupefied. The tremors stopped altogether at that same moment, but only our subconscious minds registered the fact. We three were gazing across the great cavernous space into which the tunnel opened. It seemed in that first stunned glance that with this strange cavern must occupy most of the interior of the mountain, so huge was it. It must have been a half mile in diameter and was like the interior of a hollow cone. The mountain's dozens of tunnels all opened up down into it. It was lit by a quivering, glowing light which came from what was beyond doubt the most awesome and stupefying thing that man had ever dared to look upon. I cannot, even now, describe to you with one-tenth of its real terrible splendor the thing that poised at the center of this cone-like cavern, the thing at which Travis and Skeel and I gazed. Can you imagine a great ovoid of pure light, like a huge egg in shape and a hundred feet high, poised upon its smaller end? That was what we three looked upon, a giant ovoid of light or force that towered there at the cone cavern center, emitting the light that illuminated it, and also the enigmatic force that had beat upon us and the soft roar of the sounds we heard. This ovoid was of all colors, it seemed. Its colors changed with incalculable swiftness like those of a racing cinema film, and those racing tints seemed to reproduce all the colors of the earth. The ovoid would flame for an instant with red like a devouring volcano. Then the red would be gone, and instead would be a thread of blue, serene as the blue of mountain lakes. The blue would pass into brown like the warm brown of fresh-turned soil, and that in turn into green like the ocean's depths. These colors changed and spun and swam in the great ovoid unceasingly, and just as in them seemed represented every natural color of earth, so in the soft roar of sound that came from the ovoid there seemed merged and mingled all the natural sounds of earth. The crash of avalanches and thunder of slow-moving glaciers were in that roar, the splitting of tortured rocks. One heard the howl of winds, the caressing whisper of soft breezes, the gurgling of small brooks and the smash of hurricanes. That roar of merged sound seemed issuing from a whispering gallery open to all the sounds of earth. From the lower end of this huge, poised ovoid of light branched scores of great tentacles of light, glowing arms that ran down into the rock floor. 
They did not run into openings in that rock, but into the rock itself, interpenetrating it as light interpenetrates glass. Somehow it seemed to me, even in that most stunned of moments, that those light tentacles branching down from the ovoid were of inconceivable length, that from where it poised here at the frozen tip of the earth, those arms of force or light penetrated down through all earth's mighty mass. As Travis and Skeel and I gazed now at the mighty ovoid, there shot suddenly from its lower end a new light tentacle, as though forming suddenly. It darted across the cavern and encircled us three. Its grip was like that of solid steel rather than glowing light, and with us in its grasp it darted back towards the ovoid. We were held by this tentacle a score of feet from the ovoid. The scene was incredibly weird. The mighty cavern, the huge ovoid of light with its kaleidoscopic colors, roars of merging sound and downward branching tentacles, the arm of light that held Travis and Skeel and me in remorseless grip. It held us beneath the ovoid, as though that immense thing of light from which it branched was contemplating us, and somehow in my mind then I knew, I knew without a shadow of doubt, that the ovoid was examining us, inspecting us by means of strange senses somewhere inside its glowing mass of light, senses having nothing to do with any senses we knew, but operating on planes entirely different, its vast will and mind beat on us tangibly. Skeel's cry came thinly to my ears over the soft roar of the towering ovoid. The brain of the earth! The Eskimos were right! It's the brain of the earth! The brain of the earth. The earth brain, Travis and I mouthed. For somehow we knew, we knew absolutely, that it was the brain of the living earth that towered here and held us, this awful ovoid of light poised in its mountain chamber, this stupendous intelligence which saw and heard and somehow represented all the colors and sounds of earth in its body, and whose light tentacles ran down like animating sinews. The Eskimos had been right. Their legends had told truth when they said that this mountain at the frozen top of earth held the brain of earth, and that it cared not how men moved upon its mighty earth body, so long as they approached not the body's brain. For earth was but body to this great brain, and just as microbes move upon a human body without ever knowing that it's a living thing, so had men moved and lived upon its body, the earth, without ever dreaming that the huge body was animated by a vast kind of life so different from their own, they had deemed it lifeless. Men had moved and lived upon the living earth for ages, generation after generation of tiny parasites, but now three of those parasites had had the audacity to approach the earth's brain, had disregarded the earth brain's warning tremors, and penetrated to the innermost chamber. Those tentacles of light, Travis was yelling thinly in my ear, they must run down the earth brain like muscles through the earth. The light tentacles drew us closer to the earth brain. Can you picture the scene? The great ovoid of light holding us with one of its tentacles, inspecting us, examining us as a man might take and examine an insect. I felt a withdrawal of interest from Clark Landon's petty affairs and viewpoints. My mind seemed to leap beyond his little concerns to infinitely vaster things, and yet I knew somewhere in my consciousness that it was not my own mind that leapt thus, but the mere reflection of echo in my mind of the earth brain holding me. How can I tell what I seemed to feel? It was as though for the time I was part of the great earth brain, was thinking as it thought and seeing things as it saw them. It was as though, like it, my mind was cased not in any tiny body of colloids and bones, but in a vast body endowed with a totally different sort of life. It seemed that I, the earth brain now, and not Clark Landon, sat here in this brain chamber at the top of my earth body. Poised here, I was aware of all my great body, as a man is of his arms and legs. For down into my earth body ran the tentacles of light that extended to the uttermost parts of earth, the muscular system by which I moved my earth body at will. 
I moved one of those mighty muscles of light, and the answering movement of my earth body was a great quake on the other side of the earth. Another of my muscles twitched, and an avalanche crashed somewhere else on earth. I paid no attention whatever to the verminous tiny things dwelling upon my body, often annihilated in hordes by my earth body's movements. And I, the earth brain, and my great earth body were not stationary, but moving. My great body was racing at awful speed through vast leagues of infinite space, and far off across those immensities of space, I was aware of other living Earths, other planets, some larger and some smaller than I, but each living in the same vast way that I lived, each with its own great brain. Yes, and from those other living Earths, there came to me across the void messages, communication, I, Clark Landon, could not even dimly comprehend the nature of that communication, which the earth brain carried on, but it was constant and unbroken, a strange speaking of living earth to earth across the void, an exchange of thoughts, of purpose. For purpose there was in the way in which I and those other mighty brains moved our planet bodies through space. It was not by mere blind chance, haphazardly, that we moved, but consciously, deliberately, carrying out together some vast purposeful design, circling and moving with superhuman exactness, a colossal geometrical march of vast living earth things through space. And even as I, Clark Landon, thus seemed to share the superhuman viewpoints of the earth brain that held us, so did I share dimly its attitude towards ourselves. In one part of my intelligence I was still Clark Landon, held with Travis and Skeel helplessly by a thing of mystery and terror. But in another part of my mind I was the earth brain, inspecting these three tiny parasites who had dared penetrate my brain chamber. For I, the earth brain, had never bothered one way or another with the numberless parasites that dwelt on my body, except when any had dared approach the mountain at my body's top. And then I'd warned them, driven them back by movements and tremors. But these three had not been driven back, but instead had come on with insane temerity until they'd penetrated this dwelling chamber of mine where none of their kind had ever penetrated before. And I had found their audacity so unprecedented, so unexpected, that I'd grasped these three insect things to examine them. I was aware, even as Travis and Skeel and I struggled vainly against the light tentacle's grip, of the earth brain's desire to inspect one of us more closely. I was not surprised when another light tentacle whipped out from its base and grasped Skeel, raised him high in the air close beside the earth brain. Travis and I ceased our struggles, watched in a sort of paralysis of terror as Skeel was raised high beside the earth brain. The glowing light of the great ovoid seemed to beat out through him as the tentacle turned him this way and that like a helpless puppet. And then suddenly, with a red crash of horror, I was no longer the earth brain at all, but was Clark Landon, screaming wildly with Travis and shaking impotent little hands. For with those two tentacles, it had casually torn Skeel's living body into halves. The tentacles held those two torn red things of broken flesh and bone that a moment before had been Herbert Skeel closer to the earth brain's towering ovoid. The brain was inspecting them, so calmly and dispassionately as a man might tear apart an insect and examine its interior. Skeel! Travis was screaming raggedly over an unceasing soft roar. The things killed Skeel! It's vivisected him, I said. I'll... I'll kill the damn thing! I was struggling insanely to reach the automatic in my belt, but held in the light tentacle's grasp with Travis. I could not move my arms an inch. The earth brain still was examining the broken body of Skeel. The great ovoid's changing color still raced and swam, its roar of merged sound unceasing, and its mighty will still flooding tangibly through us. It broke the halves of Skeel's body into smaller pieces. After a moment's inspection, it dropped these red fragments, and the two tentacles that held him shot down towards Travis and I. They grasped Travis and swung him up towards the earth brain side as Skeel had been swung, to vivisect him as Skeel had been vivisected. 
The other tentacle of light still held me on the floor, but in the moment that Travis had been taken by the two, the grip of it upon me had loosened, and in that instant I ripped my pistol from my belt. Now as Travis was raised toward the earth brain, I aimed in a flash and fired a stream of steel-jacketed bullets up into the earth brain's mighty ovoid of light. It was in the sheer madness of insane fury that I shot thus into the earth brain, for I had no conscious hope of hurting in the least that terrific thing of tangible light and force in which its intelligence was embodied. But certain it is that even unconsciously I had no expectation of the cataclysmic reaction that took place the instant my bullets tore into its ovoid. The earth brain flamed pure crimson instantly, the crimson of leaping hellfires and raging holocausts, the red of a superhuman stupendous wrath. Colossal anger emanated from it at the same moment like a wave of destroying force, and as that cosmic wrath swept through me, I knew that I had committed the blackest sin against the universe. And as the earth brain blazed, blinding crimson in rage, all its great tentacles or light tentacles whipped and twisted in a wild convulsion of wrath. Travis was flung against the cavern's wall and smashed into red pulp by the impact. I was hurled as wildly and struck not the cavern wall, but the mouth of the tunnel down which we'd come, and all the earth seemed shaking with a tremendous grinding roar. The earth brain had, for the moment, gone mad with sheer rage. I staggered to my feet. The mountain, the great cavern, and the tunnel in whose mouth I was standing were rocking about me like a leaf in the wind. The earth brain, in its mad excess of rage at having been attacked, had, for the moment, forgotten me. I stumbled away from that awful spectacle of the crimson flaming ovoid up into the tunnel. It was mindless terror that made me struggle up the tunnel whose terrific shakings flung me this way and that. I knew that in a moment when the earth brain's first wild rage subsided, it would remember me and its vengeance would crash down upon me. I cannot tell now for how many minutes I fought my way up that tunnel, thrown from my feet each time I staggered erect by the wild pitchings of the mountain, crawling crazily upward on hands and knees. I saw ahead the white circle of light that was the tunnel's opening just as the first awful quakes began to subside, as the earth brain's first convulsive rage began to calm. I knew the earth brain would now remember me, and I flung myself forward out of the dark tunnel into the daylight on the mountain side. Below and far away stretched the glimmering ice fields, but now they were heaved and rumpled like waves of a mighty sea. Down the mountain's icy side I started by the path Travis and Skeel and I had cut in ascending. There came a roar from above as an avalanche of ice and rock poured down on me from the mountain. I flattened myself beneath the angle of the slant, and it roared over and passed me. The earth brain had indeed remembered, knew where I was upon its body, and was seeking to slay me. Thrice more it tried to destroy me as I struggled down the mountainside, twice in avalanches, and once the whole mountain shook violently as though to dislodge me. I do not know yet by what chance I evaded those tremendous attacks and got to the ice field at the mountain's bottom, bruised and terror-dazed. I looked to where our camp had been, and there was but no scat and one sledge and the three dogs. Sean and the other sledge and dogs had been caught and annihilated by the shifting ice. Noscat ran towards me. He was babbling madly of the vengeance of the earth brain, of the mighty quake that had killed Sean and the dogs and shaken terribly the earth itself. I cut him short, and we fled southward from the mountain over the ice fields. We pressed on, motivated only by the insane desire to put more distance between us and the towering mountain. The next week was like one in a strange inferno, an icy hell of cold in which we pushed south with the Earthbrain's vengeance ever following closely. Nine times during that week we were menaced by violent quakes that shook the ice over which we traveled. How we escaped those suddenly opening crevices and marching ice ridges and terrified shocks I cannot now dream. It came to me during that week of hell that Travis and Skeel had been luckier than I in being slain outright, with this remorseless vengeance of that mighty ovoid of light and intelligence pursuing me. Yet with that mad persistence that still actuated me, I pushed on. 
Toward the week's end, Nuskat's strength failed. With him in the sledge, dying and babbling of the earth brain, I struggled south and at last reached the ship. To the ship's officers, who talked excitedly of the great cataclysm that had almost destroyed the vessel, I lied. I said that there had been a terrific quake, and that Travis and Skeel and Sean had been killed. Noscat died without regaining consciousness, and there was none to contradict me. The ship started south. I prayed as we sailed southward that the earth brain would pursue me no further, but I feared, I feared. And my fear was justified, for as the ship passed close to the shore of Grinnelland, a projecting glacier broke and hurled out a huge mass of ice that barely missed the ship. Two days later, an undersea disturbance almost swamped us. The ship's crew talked of unsettled conditions, of earth faults caused by the great polar quake, but I knew the truth, knew that my prayer was not answered, and that still the earth brain's vengeance followed me. We finally reached Halifax, and there I saw that the earth brain would not wreck of killing my entire race, if it could slay me. For two days after we reached Halifax came a terrible quake that destroyed half the city, killing thousands of its people. I escaped again by the mere chance of being in an open park when the quake began. I fled from Halifax, whose dead seemed to point accusingly at me, and I took a boat to Norway, and the day I arrived there a quake came that did great damage. By then I knew enough to stay out of buildings that might crash upon me, even sleeping in the open air. I went on from Norway to Russia. Russia had a series of three devastating quakes, the third one of which almost got me despite my precautions. When I fled on to Egypt, it was worse, for my presence in Alexandria brought a quake and a tidal wave that killed more innocent thousands. When I headed north again to Italy, the peninsula was racked by unprecedented quakes and landslides, and when I went on to England, the quakes followed me still. I knew that sooner or later, despite my carefulness to stay out of buildings and away from mountains and hills that might loose avalanches upon me, one of these quakes would get me, and the earth brain's vengeance would come. But I fled on, took a boat home. I arrived in New York today, and you, Mars, you saw what happened. You saw that when I'd not been in New York more than a few hours, there came an earth tremor. To the people here it seemed only a tremor, but to me it was warning and knowledge. Knowledge that the earth brain knows of my presence here. That it is still seeking to slay me with the movements of its body. Yes, following me still with deadly purpose. And that is why I dare not stay here in New York, Morris. If I did stay, sooner or later the earth brain would again attempt to kill me with an earthquake or tidal wave that might kill more innocent thousands, or tens of thousands, here. I have the blood of enough people on my head without wanting more killed on my account. So I must go on, must leave here now before I bring doom on New York from the earth brain's endeavors. That was the story Clark Landon told me in my New York apartment the morning of the tremor. He left the city despite all I could say a few hours afterwards. I parted from him at the station where he took a train to New Orleans. I never saw Landon again, but I followed his movements from that time until the end, and will summarize them briefly here. The train Landon took to New Orleans was derailed by a sudden earth tremor when a few hundred miles from its destination. Landon escaped, according to the newspaper casualty lists, though a score of people were killed and more injured. There were several earth shocks of varying violence while Landon was in New Orleans, but they ceased after he took a banana boat to Mexico. Ten days later, I read of a violent quake that had destroyed the town of Tegulcapan in northern Mexico and the neighboring villages of Causo and Santaloni. The newspaper dispatches estimated the dead at fifty and mentioned the escape of an American staying in Tegucapan. Landon went southward, and a more or less continuous series of earthquakes followed him. At Progresso, in Yucatan, a double quake laid practically every structure in ruins and slew three-fourths of the population. Again I saw Clark Landon mentioned as one who'd escaped, and it was said he started on for Guatemala. At Guatemala came the end. 
The day after Landon arrived came the first terrifying rumblings of an earthquake. Tremendous violence ensued. The radio and cable stories told of the unexpected suddenness with which the earth heaved violently and with which vast crevices began opening wide. They told of the curious suicide of an American named Clark Landon, which took place as the quake started. According to these dispatches, Landon, when the quake started, had rushed into the street along which crevices were opening, and had shouted madly, as though adjuring someone or something to stop the quake. The shocks becoming each moment more violent, Landon had shouted something about surrendering himself, stopping these quakes from devastating the earth, and had rushed to the nearest crevice and thrown himself in. According to those who saw, the crevice closed instantly upon him. With Landon's death, the quake stopped almost at once, the tremors subsiding. Though a few of Guatemala's buildings were shaken down and much glass shattered, there was no other damage, and so Guatemala had cause for rejoice. It was only after the first sensational stories of the quake and its sudden stop had filled the papers that they carried the minor detail of Landon's strange suicide. The quake at Guatemala was the last of the series of earthquakes that for almost two years had wrought destruction over Earth. There have been minor tremors and movement since, of course, but no such succession of cataclysms as that which began with the great polar quake and moved here and there over Earth until it ended at Guatemala. That is all of the story, and I, Morris, intend to attach to it no explanation, no attempt at explanation. It must end not with explanations, but with questions. Questions that may have their answer in known natural causes, or that can be answered perhaps only by the incredible tale Clark Landon told me that morning. Was the tale the literal truth? Did Landon and Travis and Skeel actually penetrate that icy mountain at Earth's top, where Earth's brain, the vast mind that has this Earth for a body, dwells? Was it because Landon attacked that Earth brain that for two years Earth was racked by quakes? Certain it is that the terrible series of quakes did follow Landon over Earth's surface. Whether that was by coincidence only, or whether those quakes were some deliberate movement striving to kill Landon as he believed, there will be difficult minds. And what of that last quake at Guatemala, where Landon flung himself into the crevice after madly adjuring the earth brain to stop its destruction? There can be no doubt that Landon saw himself as bringing endless death and destruction on innocent cities and people by his mere continued living, and that he felt, at last, the only thing to do was to sacrifice himself. Here again, it is certain, no sooner had Landon flung himself into the crevice in the Guatemala street than the quake there stopped. Was that too by chance only? Or was it that Landon's sacrifice was not in vain? That with his death, the Earth Brain's revenge was accomplished? It is with such questions, and not with explanations, as I said, that the story must end. We cannot say whether up in its mountain chamber at Earth's top sits that mighty ovoid of sentient light that Landon called the Earth Brain. Whether we who consider ourselves masters of all are not but a race of microscopic parasites dwelling upon the vast, the strange, living body of that Earth Brain. It may be that we shall never be able to say, and I think that that is best. I think it is infinitely best that we who know so much, so certainly, do not know this thing. And that was our story. Hope you enjoyed it. Gaia is a great old one, huh? right under our noses. Let's close things out this week with our 100 character story winner, this week by Dinosaur Monkey. Here goes. To do. One. Ed, rude. Two. Maggie, rejected me. Three. Greg, stole lunch. 
Four, Chris cut me off. Five, Alex got my promotion. Six, Denise, TBD. Seven. One hundred character stories. We call them twabbles, and we post them early on our social media each week at Drabblecast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. All right, folks, that's our show this week. Remember, the Travelcast is brought to you with a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license, which means don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. Blog about us, write us a review on iTunes, tell a friend, spread the weird. Special thanks to our kick-ass episode artist this week, Travelcast art director Bo Kyer. Check out Bo's stuff on his website, bokyer.com. Our program this week was brought to you by Bo Kyer, Abby Hilton, Jason Smith, Jason Cavella, Maria Dong, Jen Fisher, Tom Baker, a moth that drinks tears from your eye when you're asleep, Adam Pratt, Sandra O'Dell, and yours truly, Norm Sherman, reminding you that it seems that I, the Earth Brain now, not Norm Sherman, sit here in this brain chamber atop my body. And noise filled the room like the smoke. Laughter and curses spilled like booze from a glass. Words were all slurred when spoke. Yes, words were all splurred when spoke. In the dark corner table sits Lance Fernandez.